Let's turn to the main events. Ben's the CEO of Group 9 Media, digital media company that consists of Thrillist, Now This, The Dodo, Seeker, and Pop Sugar. And we got tons of questions from people about each of those platforms. He's the co-founder and former CEO of Thrillist. He's also co-founder and managing partner of Lara Hippo, New York's most active early stage technology fund, and a fund which Betaworks has co-invested with on a, a number of businesses in the past. Um, Lara was Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Award uh, winner, Vanity Fair's Next Establishments, Crane's 40 Under 40, Inc's 30 Under 30, probably MySpace's 20 Under 20. Um, that probably wasn't real, but um, it could have been. Um, and sits on a bunch of boards and is in general a guy who's been really connected to the New York startup scene. And that's the thing that at Betaworks, we really care about. You know, we got started in 2008. We've been deeply invested in building a New York identity for venture capital and for startups um, and are always interested in connecting with folks here. So Ben, thanks for being here today. Thank for you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Absolutely. So one of the questions that I'll just start off with, um, and it's an interesting one because so many of our members are people that were founders of companies that are, in, are now dabbling in VC um, or were VCs and are now thinking about starting companies or have done so. Um, and one of the questions that we got from a bunch of people is how do you how do you be a CEO and also lead a fund? Like, how do you actually, you, you have 24 hours a day, like all of us do, I'm sure. You don't have some secret allotment of hours to live. How, how I do you have actually, fewer, I have three children, so I have- uh, You've got about four hours a day. How do, how do you make it work? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's always a balance, um, yeah. I think, with everything else. And it, for, for me, it's come down to a few things. So uh, the, the most important one is, who I work with in each of the, those two businesses. And so my, my teammates are what make it possible for me to uh, sort of ratchet back and forth. Uh, I work with totally amazing and wonderful uh, and brilliant and also really self-sufficient and ambitious people on both sides. And so uh, without, if I, if I felt like I had the weight of the world in either business on my shoulder and that I couldn't really depend on the work that's being done by my colleagues, it would not be possible. And so uh, that, that I think goes without saying and is the foundation of why I can do both. Uh, I'd say the other part of it is, uh, I'd say maybe there's two other answers to it. One is um, over time, just getting really good at time management and being willing to say no to a lot of things that earlier in my career I would have said yes to. Um, and, and that also means uh, trusting the people, again, the people that you work with um, in ways that, that at different parts of my career, I, I might not have been as capable of doing. Um, and then I think, uh, well, uh, that, that's a good full answer to let, uh, let me, let me ask, going, ask, but Yeah. Let me ask two questions about those two of the last points you said. Can you give, give an example of like an instance where you've trusted someone that maybe you wouldn't have in the past and kind of what your thought process was? Um, I'd say probably the biggest, I'll use a, a group nine example, which is, uh, it, it really comes down to being much more uh, organized around setting goals and setting KPIs and sort of deciding what success looks like. And then trusting that you can sort of in some way passively be updated on progress without having to be in the weeds and in the dirt and sort of like double checking everybody's work. And in fact, what you find when you do that and you have the right people that you work with is it's not just that I don't need to spend that time. It's actually that I 
epically waste other people's time. And, uh, and in fact, I think I also disincentivize in certain situations or discourage people from feeling like, you know, in some way putting some sort of a natural limiter or a glass ceiling on the role because everything then has to sort of be vetted by me or checked off by me. And by really trusting people and treating everybody like an adult and holding people really accountable to delivering on their work, you actually build a much, just a much healthier environment. And last year, uh, when we merged with Pop Sugar and brought Pop Sugar into Group Nine, that's really something that I learned from Brian Sugar, who had been the founder of Pop Sugar and the CEO of Pop Sugar. He had built this incredibly trusting org and leadership team, and uh, and he helped me get comfortable with this. And it's something that has been instrumental in in helping me better manage my time. Cool. And and to ask a COVID specific question, I think a lot of us have started to interrogate the way that we constructed our work days since COVID hit. And would you? Expand on that at all about any any things that have happened since COVID in terms of how you think about both delegation and managing your time? Well, I, I think like everybody else, I've taken an incredibly good look at like every aspect of my life and you know what makes me happy and what how I think about success and uh, you know sort of like the meaning of life. I mean, literally, I think I think everybody has had some version of of uh, of looking at at themselves in new ways right now and. For me, the thing that I've, I think really sort of honed in on is the, the thing that's most important to me is to be present in everything that I do um, or in as much as I humanly and possibly can do. Um, and, you know, sort of, I don't want life to live me. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's every cliche in the world. There's like, you know, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans, et cetera, et cetera. But I've, I've, I've been working on on being really present and sort of breaking my addiction to social media and to technology uh, and to actually putting my phone away and not sleeping with it in the room and like all these things that I started to do before COVID. Now with COVID and with my third kid being born during COVID and uh, just spending obviously sort of more time with my family because I don't ever leave my house under any circumstances, uh, I sort of, what, what I've decided is anything that I do, I want to be present, not only in my personal life, but also in work, which is the meetings that I have and how I construct my calendar instead of a very regular cadence of sort of loosey goosey leaned back update meetings. I'd prefer to have fewer really engaged meetings where I feel like I can bring sort of all my energy and the best version of myself to the meeting. Uh, and by the way, that's hard to do. And it's particularly hard to do over zoom sometimes. And I find myself sort of wandering off to my phone or wandering off to my surroundings, but my, my entire, uh, focus is, is present always right now. And that, that is sort of like my mantra. And, and I think COVID has given me a backdrop to, to really work on it. Um, that's great. And, and th that makes sense. And I think that there's some lessons there for everyone. And I'm sure that many of us are already have been doing that. Almost all of us have probably been doing that in some way. And I think we're all looking for advice and tips on how to continue calibrating that formula. And I want to get later on to touching on kids a bit, because I think that's a yeah. big thing for people working. Um, but let's, I'd like to, to kind of bring it back to the beginning a little bit. Um, I first became aware of you probably 10 or so years ago when Thrillis launched. Um, and I remember, because I, I co-founded a conference called Social Media Week with my partner, Toby Daniel. And, um, and at the time, 
there was something about Thrillist that seemed both insanely simple and also um, insanely practical and useful. And, and it just hit with me. And I'm curious, like, talk us, let's, let's talk about Thrillist a little bit in the beginning. Where did it come from? What were some of the kind of initial questions that you guys had in launching that business? And what might be some reflection that you've got on it now? Because it's, how old is it now? 10, is it 10 years or, or over 10 years old? It's, like, 10 years. it's yeah. like 14 years old or something. Yeah. Ludicrous. Yeah. It makes me feel like I'm dying of old age. Uh, I, right, right now, there are lots of people that are thinking about launching media platforms. And I think in terms of the way that content is consumed right now and the way that, um, you know, constituents are engaged, it's on people's minds. And, and they're looking back at success stories from the last 10 to 15 years and wondering where do I draw from. And I'm just curious, talk us a little bit about how you, where Thrillist came from and, and some reflections that you might have on it over the last 15 years. Yeah, so, and it's funny, you know, history always repeats itself and sort of what's old is new. And I, I do think that the simplicity of Thrillist's original model is something that is very um, of the moment right now. Yeah. In, uh, you know, a singular product that serves a singular purpose versus these, you know, brands that sort of meander and are all things to all people. And, you know, Thrillist was uh, very simply an email that you would subscribe to as a guy who lived in New York City, who wanted, who liked to eat and drink and go out. And it was supposed to be a very, a, a three minute, five minute digest on a thing that would that you would not have known about otherwise that would be interesting to you in your social life and uh daily candy which had launched prior had built something very similar for women that was hugely successful and we said why am i reading daily candy i should be reading you know thrillist and so uh we created thrillist on nights and weekends like i think a lot of businesses got started in i think more businesses got started on nights and weekends at least with, with the kind of ambitions that we had 10 or 15 years ago, because there was no venture capital yeah. to speak of in New York. And so there was no such thing as raising money on a good idea. You raised money only on an existing business. And so everything had to be bootstrapped. And we, uh, I, I, you know, I started with a college buddy and it sort of, it worked in New York and worked meant that when we wrote about a new restaurant, a lot of people went. Uh, and so we did it in LA and it worked in LA. So we went to San Francisco, et cetera, et cetera. And that was, that was the product for a long time. And, you know, over time, I think as a, as, as a means to drive growth and as a means to sort of just, you know, we, we were always building something that, that was not supposed to be a, you know, we, we did raise money early on, not on day one, but early on. And from yeah. that moment on, we sort of realized that we like, you're on that hamster wheel and, you know, grow or die. And so we had to find new ways to grow. And some of those ways were really clever and helped. And some of those ways were a lot of wasted time and energy and uh, probably a lot of wasted money too. The, the, the growth of Thrillist coincided with the development and success of the Facebook graph. Um, did, would, was your success connected to that at all, do you think? Or did you- No, I would actually that? say our, our success was could have and should have and would have been much greater had we really been uh, early to appreciating the the power that existed there. In fact, we were sort of Luddites in the social media space for a long time. And I think we have more than made up for it over the years. Yeah. Uh, but but we, we really, uh, we grew the old fashioned way. Someone forwarded the email to a friend and yeah. 
uh, said, let's go here. If you were to start Thrillist today, would it be a Substack or how, how would, what platform would you use to get it started if it was just an idea that you were trying to do now? So it's, it's as funny as it is, I might start it exactly the same way. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> uh, you, you know, I think you sort of, you know, I'd go right back to square one uh, and, and, and do some version of it all over again. It would probably be a text message instead of an email or something like that. But it would be, uh, I would start, you know, I, I think building something that really meets a need versus something that sort of meets a lot of needs yeah. uh, is really important. And it was a, uh, it was a category killing product. It was, it was like the, the thing worked and uh, it's not easy to find something that has that elegance to it. That is, that is simple and that grows organically and that, uh, that, that just sort of has like, those those dynamics and by the way a model that if you don't get too overly ambitious and try to conquer the world can run really profitably and sustainably uh but of course we screwed that up many times over so and that that's always a challenge i think for you know the the world has changed and as the lore of venture capital has grown has has become more accessible to people i think the idea of having a successful small business it, it's harder to know when to say this is good and I want to stick like this, or I want to keep growing and growing. What, what were some points where you were faced with a decision like that and you went in one direction or another and why? So we, uh, you know, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, it's hard to sort of Monday morning quarterback these situations, but we almost blindly just continued to move the goalpost back. So we said, if we get to a hundred thousand subscribers and X, like game over. And then inevitably, by the time you get to 100,000 subscribers, you have forgot that conversation entirely. And you're, you know, deeply disappointed that you're not at 250,000 subscribers or at $10 million of revenue, game over. Or at, you know, enterprise value of X. You know, we set a bunch of these sort of markers in the early days and then surpassed them and, and you know, subsequently forgot that we had ever done so. Uh, I feel like, Part of that was just the sort of immaturity or naivety of like, you know, young kids starting our first business. At the same time, you know, I'm now uh, 38 and I still don't know what, how to define success. And I think for a long time, I, 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 I'm getting better at defining success and the, the getting better at it means I'm just deciding that I'm going to define it through my family and personal life. For, and, and, and their happiness is basically means I like, like if I can make a happy family genuinely, then it means that I'm, then like I'm doing my job, but in business, even now, okay. So group nine gets to, you know, $200 million of revenue. And it's like, I remember when a hundred million dollars was like game over. And then it was now 200. Then it's like, okay, well, like, Okay, but like, is it 500? Yeah. But like, why? Like, wh when is big enough or what is big enough? And, and that's a really personal thing that, that I think every individual, you know, by the way, not just founder, but, but employee person in their life needs to figure out like what makes them happy and what's enough and when are they 
like what's the definition of being satisfied because it's really easy to live a life where no matter what it's not enough and i i think the best example of that is looking at our president who seems like the most unhappy person in the entire world yet he has accomplished everything that he wanted to accomplish from the day he was born and clearly like that does not equate with happiness and so how do you think about like like what is what's enough yeah and I think, you know, you've touched on it, but what's happened, I think, in this COVID time is at least a lot of people, I think, are starting to ask themselves those questions. If a lot of the detritus is stripped from our lives and things are brought down to the core of what we have, are we happy with that? Or do we actually feel empty and feel like there's something missing? Um, I think stability is another question that certainly has to do with people looking for more. Is that like, I think, you know, the days of the GE comfortable job is are, are gone for a lot of people. And, and so like, if I'm building something, why should I stop here? How, how do I get myself to a point of safety and security? And, and that's a question that we don't have. But I think to to go from there. So I mean, Thrillist was a company. And then at what what point did you decide that like, you know, it, we we want to level up and build a holding company around these platforms and start growing the brand out? Well, I think we always had sort of ambitions around feeling like we were sort of pretty good at what we were doing and yeah. there could be more and that you know there was more white space and our first what what I thought my my first like you know big brilliant idea was was to take the community and the audience that we had built at Thrillist and try to build a direct commerce business off of it and so we bought a a, a small flash sale site uh, exactly. Talk about a different, you know, a different era, a flash sale business, uh, and called Jack Threads, and uh, and actually had, in certain ways, a huge amount of success. We built Jack Threads to be a a pretty big business, almost a hundred million dollar revenue, uh, commerce biz on the uh, sort of in in many ways on the back of Thrillist, but in many ways totally independent of Thrillist, and just the fact that we, you know, that the team there was really strong and built a good thing, yeah. and. Uh, in many ways, we were ahead of our time. And uh, investors uh, thought that, that, you know, there was investors who knew about media and cared about media and understood media and didn't understand our retail business. And there were retail investors who understood the retail business and didn't understand the, the media business. And uh, when I went out to capitalize the business, got a very rude awakening, which was that, I had investors who liked one business or the other, but that one plus one did not equal three and one plus one didn't even equal two. Uh, well, and, and so uh, ultimately had to make the decision to unwind the two businesses from one another and spin Jack Threads out into a separate entity. And I we became a passive investor in Jack Threads and stayed with Thrillist and said, okay, well, that was interesting. Uh, we learned a lot. And uh, we learned a lot about what to do. We learned a lot about what not to do. But I got exposure to running a materially bigger business and said, I think I can run something bigger than what we are right now. What are other ways that we can grow this thing? There is, of course, the organic growth of putting one foot in front of the other. But there's also opportunity out there. And, and a lot of that opportunity I was sort of, uh, I had an eye on because of investing through the fund. And yeah. so I had, I, I had a cool purview on the digital media space because of our investments. 
And so I sort of had this unfair advantage, I thought, where I was able, I knew what was going on at Thrillist, but I also knew what was going on at BuzzFeed and Business Insider and Refinery29 and all these other businesses and said, there is, each of these businesses is interesting, but these all feel a little too, like there's too many pressures and being small or mid-sized is, it's, it's going to be really hard to sort of find the growth that we want. And I think that there, that consolidation needs to come to digital media the way that it came to the radio business or the TV business or the, you know, yeah. the magazine business or the newspaper business. But, uh, and I not only think it needs to come, but I think I'm uniquely positioned to bring some of the consolidation because of the relationships and the sort of knowledge that I have around digital media. And so uh, set out to put some assets together uh, and that was, that was the right decision, uh, without question. But, uh, again, it didn't, all, all the boxes of Thrillist is too small independently and I need to get bigger and what's big enough. It's, it's not as simple as we weren't big enough and then we were, yeah. we're still not big enough. Uh, and I, and I'm quite honestly, I don't know what the, we could go combine with the other two largest digital media companies. And I still don't know what the definition of big enough is and what, what does that mean? And, you know, it's hard when you're when you're operating in a world with companies like Google and Facebook and Apple and, you know, these, these monsters yeah. that, you know, there are days where I, I look at everything that I'm working towards and I, and I go, Oh God, it's all like, Oh, it doesn't even matter. Like, you know, nobody, like we're just a pimple on the pimple of the pimple of, you know, Facebook. And then there's other days where I feel very differently and very, uh, inspired by the power of our communities and by the people that I work with. And I mean, obviously, generally speaking, I I'm really proud of what we've built, but, uh, but it's hard in a world where there's no, you know, you just don't know what, what there, there's no playbook for what success is. Yeah. And totally understand that. But I, I think you touch on, on some things in your response that are the questions that go through people's heads, which is like, again, it's about, desire and security and assurance and 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 also just like where you where you want things to land um i'd love to oh, start going to the audience questions now and we'll do one last question or kind of wrap up the media part and move into the investment side so rachel lamb of imagination is one of our members she asks ben what sectors of the media industry do you find most intriguing for investment right now good question rachel uh so you know, media is a funny one because most VCs really don't like media uh, and really don't, you know, understand media. And uh, I, there, there's been a huge shift where, you know, four or five, six years ago, I think there was a belief that digital media would sort of usurp all traditional mediums and you know, the TV business hung around way stronger than anybody expected. And Facebook and Google gobbled up the entire digital advertising market. And we found ourselves in a world where VCs basically shut off ad supported media entirely. And everybody, as is sort of like the nature of the beast, the pendulum swung, and then everybody went to 
sort of micro media. So thing, you know, mediums where you can sell subscription, where you directly monetize your audience. Um, in some ways, some of the things that we had done with the Thrillish Jack Threads combination a long time ago, um, but, you know, subscription-based, uh, non-ad supported business. And uh, I think, interestingly, where the pendulum is sort of swinging back a little bit is being 100% reliant on advertising or being 100% reliant on subscription, both are meaningfully limiting uh, in how big these things can be. And if you go back to sort of any of the traditional media models in their heyday, they were always multi-revenue stream and in particular dual revenue stream. So in the cable business, you had the affiliate money and you had your advertising money or in the newspaper business, you had your subscriber base and your advertising base. And it was always advertising and something and figuring out what that something is, is really important to, uh, the media model right now. I think that there were times where people sort of, you know, everyone wants a silver bullet. And so events was sort of, so, you know, everyone wants, and, and then, you know, COVID hits and then sort of events go away for a, for a minute. I, I don't think it's as simple as just one thing, but I do think the media companies that I'm excited about are ones that have real fans and real communities that if they went away tomorrow, people would notice and people would care and that have a, either current or legitimate future path to making money in a variety of ways. And by the way, one of those ways can and should be advertising, generally speaking. Uh, generally speaking, that doesn't mean that, that, that you know, is a hard and fast rule, but advertising should not be some huge, horrible, bad word because Facebook and Google exist, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay, that, that's great. And that definitely makes sense. Um, let's take it back to kind of the sort of more beginning of, of investment. So a question from, and apologies if I fuck your name up, uh, Swathi Guru. Um, she asks, or he asks, um, what are three things you look for before investing in a company? Well, it would be, it would be nice if, I, if there was like a checklist that we could go down of just checking the three things. But um, I would say uh, the most important thing is the team. I mean, and that, you know, by the way, this is, that's probably the case for any investor and any investor would say that. I think in particular for yeah. Lear or Hippo, because we're generally writing, mon writing checks at the very early stages of a company's life, yeah. uh, that the founding team is of extraordinary importance, not just that they have domain expertise, but that we can imagine being partners with them for a long time. And so there is, there has to be an actual sort of rapport and some relationship and personal side of it that, that uh, may sometimes feel arbitrary. Um, that is one piece. Another piece is obviously it's, it's nice and important. I think if it's a market that we believe in, that they're building something in a market that we think is sort of disruptable and big enough and, and interesting. Um, and then obviously, I guess the third one would be that the work that they've done is work that we think is, is generally good. And the products that they've built or the data that they have or the, you know, the results to date are, are impressive. I think some version of those three, but uh, the one that is sort of unassailable is people. Yeah. Um, we can invest in people we love with the other two sort of being questionable understanding that there is a, we, we have a fundamental belief that everybody pivots yes. that at some point 
the, the playbook that you lay out, the financial model you build. The only thing we really know is that what you won't do is what you say you will do in your pitch deck. So one question related to that first point about the team that a lot of founders face that have an idea is the, the CTO, the tech piece. Do you guys view a founder who pitches you differently if the person who's building their technology is a founder versus someone in agencies that they've hired or a contractor or a freelancer? Um, because that is a question, obviously, that a lot of non-technical founders face. In how do I start this thing? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. I'm a non-technical founder. And so I, I have a special place in my heart for non-technical founders. Uh, I, I certainly think that the product or the category that you're building for matters. And so there are certain companies where technology, the entire thing is the tech and there's other companies where it might be more tech enabled. Uh, and so and, you know, be, we're, we're sector agnostic. And so, you know, maybe an example is like all birds didn't in the earliest days, it wasn't like, we're going to go vet your tech up and down. It was like, you're going to have a Shopify site, like, and sell stuff. And like, can you build the supply chain? Can you do the product R and D? Can you do the marketing? Can you, you know, do a bunch of other things? Um, then we're going to invest, you know, sometimes we, or we invest in a robotics company where, like you either make a, like a robot that like does this thing and actually does it better than anyone else or, or not. And so, yeah. I mean, it's, we're, we're all over the map. I think category matters. Uh, so, you know, I, I do think that we, we talk a lot about founder fit for what they're building. So sometimes we meet a founder who's super impressive. They might be deeply technical. They might, you know, be, be amazing but they're building something that just feels wrong for them to be building. It feels like a weird use of their talent. And there are certain situations where I pass on a company and tell the founder, I would invest in you doing pretty much anything else except for the thing that you're doing. So if you want to start really any other company at all, I would like to be your partner, but don't build this because it makes no sense for you. By the way, we're wrong as often as we're right or more often than we're right. So, you know, don't take my word for it, but, I think founder fit matters. And, and how trans, when, if someone actually gets a chance to pitch Larry Hippo, um, how, how transparent are you about, like, if you have questions about the founder fit, like when you're doing pitch meetings, are you typically upfront and saying, these are our concerns about your team? Or is that the thing that gets, because I'm sure that you're transparent about the company and the business, but how transparent are you about that? So, you know, we have a, a decently sized team. Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, eight investment professionals or nine investment professionals in total, including the partners who are meeting companies and, you know, participating in making decisions about, about, you know, whether or not we're going to participate in a round. And I, I can't speak for every single person on the team communicating the exact same way. Um, I think generally we tr we're trying to build a brand that's about transparency and treating founders with a lot of respect and giving them and, and being helpful, even if we're not going to be invested. And so we like to give as you know, like one of our, one of the things that I think we, we stand for is to give that feedback. I don't know that we always do it. I try to give feedback in the room when I meet somebody and basically tell them whether or not I think we're going to do a deal with them the first time I meet them. And obviously there's lots of caveats to that, but I tell them if I'm leaning in or I'm leaning out before even talking to anybody else on the team. And I do that, frankly, 
as a, as a result of having raised lots of money myself and been, and gotten lots of mixed signals and lots of, uh, wasted time and really frustrating processes where I've left a meeting and been like, whoop, whoop, like, like, where's the term sheet? And then I get some feedback from them that feels entirely inconsistent with the vibe in the room. And I always just feel sort of a little misled and I'm a little sore after that. And so, uh, I try to be really transparent in the room to the level of saying, here's my thinking. I think this is really interesting. This is really interesting. This is really interesting. I'm hung up on this. And I think that this is going to be a problem for us. And, you know, and I don't do it every time. And I, uh, I'm, I'm, but, but I, that's the, that's the, that's what, that's what I'd like to, you know, be, be sort of known for. And one, one note I'll say to the founders in the audience, um, we do an event at Betaworks Studios once a month called Inside the Investment Committee, um, where we bring another VC in like Larry Hippo to participate in one last year. Um, and we have one of our members pitch the VC in front of the audience um, to actually see both um, the experience of, of the pitch, but also too, then the committee has a meeting afterward that talks about why they would or wouldn't invest in things. If you haven't attended one in the past and you're interested in learning more about the process, you should, because it is great to get a, a better sense of how they actually evaluate um, these kinds of deals. Um, so another investment related question. Um, so obviously, you know, I think there's a lot of questions in March as COVID started to hit about how that would impact investment overall. Um, Paul Murphy, who was the CEO of Dots, a Betaworks investment company, tweeted a month ago that he was surprised that actually there's been a lot more investment than he had anticipated happening overall. Where are you guys at? How many investments have you made? Or um, just in general, how would you kind of rate your activity? And what's your, your mindset on it right now? So we saw, uh, you know, I, I think the world sort of ground to a halt in mid-March, um, and we ground to a halt with it. Uh, you know, first off, because we had a lot of companies who were wildly freaked out and needed a lot of attention, and a few needed emergency sort of triage stuff, and a few had some opportunistic things that they wanted to do, and so we we had to spend a lot of time with our existing portfolio and take a little bit of a just, you know, let a little bit of the dust settle on just what is going on. You know, I think the whole world just sort of ground to a halt for a second. Yes. And we were part of that. Uh, by the way, not to mention founders stopped raising. You know, founders didn't just like keep slamming their head against the wall. Everybody just took a step back and, and basically took off the rest of Q2 for the yes. most part. Um, and, you know, different funds needed to get different levels of comfort with meeting folks over Zoom and not getting to spend time with them directly. I think every firm got over that pretty quickly. We had a very seamless process of getting over that because we've always made investment decisions without um, having the, uh, having like the founders come in and pitch the whole partnership. So it's, we, our process was maybe a little bit less disrupted than some other funds, particularly funds who write really large late stage checks. Uh, and what we've seen since is a huge amount of activity. Let's call it in Q3 um, driven by one, a bunch of founders who were working on things that came out of market and a bunch of founders who were inspired to work on things by the changes in the world. And so Q3 was uh very busy, almost 2x year over year from a deal flow perspective. Um, and 
what we've seen is a bunch of funds who sat on the sidelines in Q2 in a pretty, I think, convoluted way, almost trying to make up for it. And uh, there is so much heat in the market right now. Valuations are wildly out of control, irresponsibly out of control. Um, and, you know, we've seen these, uh, again, the, I'm a big pendulum believer, but we've seen this swing, you know, 50 times in the last 10 years, but it has, it was, you couldn't raise money for anything in April. And now you can raise money for anything <laughs> in September. Like, Terrible stuff is being funded now at high valuations and great stuff couldn't raise a penny. And it's just, the market is, needs to sort of like shake itself out a little bit and, and get back to some semblance of normalcy. Now's a great time for founders to raise though, because there's a bunch of money that was on the sidelines that's trying to invest. And in fairness, we saw a lot of good stuff. And I think we did seven new deals in the third quarter, which is a, a, a busy quarter for us. Wow, that seven deals. That's actually, yeah, that's great. I mean, so that's, you th things are back to normal for you. Are you able to comment on what any of them were or I, you know, why it's you made the investment? There is there's sometimes no rhyme or reason to uh, when we invest and when the company announces that investment. So I always have to be very careful because there's companies that we invested in that like raised, that announced this week, but we invested a year ago. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm scared to say company names because I can't remember who has come out to the world yet. W one that comes to mind is, uh, a company called, uh, topicals, mm -hmm. which I know has, uh, announced their fundraising and they are a, uh, a beauty and health brand in, uh, selling, uh, and, and creating, skincare products for uh, over-the-counter but, but medical-grade skin conditions with a general focus on uh, all skin tones, yes. um, where the market has generally been built for people of one skin tone. Of our skin tone, yes. Of our skin tone, indeed. Yes. Um, so, and the question I'll ask is, is did you, would you say that, that Larry Hippo looked at that business differently in making the investment now versus if they'd pitched you a year ago? Um, Absolutely not, not. That one was, so the only difference would be, has COVID fundamentally transformed a market in a way that it will never go back? Yeah. I think in the beauty space, COVID has, you know, pulled forward the trend of e-commerce some, but we've been investing in that trend for a long time. And so I don't see a, a giant difference. I guess the market is incrementally better. Consumers are this much more comfortable buying that way. But I think consumers were comfortable buying that way long before this. And by the way, I think their strategy should still be omni-channel and they should assume that people will buy stuff in stores again. And so uh, that was a founder bet uh, through and through. And we would have made that bet a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. And uh, one of the questions that was asked by Gitika Agarwal is, are you currently investing in, in women minority-owned businesses? If so, what types of businesses are you looking to invest in? And I'll ask, was the founder of that uh, organization, is that issue, is it a woman or a man? Or It's, a, it's two women that are women of color. Uh, so the answer is yes, obviously. But uh, that is... Uh, 
that is something that we are making a bunch of, uh, I would say, very explicit uh, efforts around making sure that we don't just do what, you know, I think, I mean, I, I think that we are in a moment of real change, fortunately, um, but uh, it's easy to sort of, you know, to sort of talk about it in a moment and then do disappear and go back to the way you're doing things. And I think for us, it has to do with, uh, we're, we're, you know, how are you sourcing um, at the end of the day is a, by the way, and that, that goes for how, how companies hire as well. Yeah. Uh, for me, this is, this, this, this foundationally comes from like, you, you can't just hope you have to explicitly try to expand the, the sources. And in some cases that may mean actually, well, I wouldn't say explicitly turning off sources. Uh, and and I, I'll use the like group nine, for instance, as we're thinking through and changing some of our recruiting practices, it means materially deprioritizing employee referrals. Um, you can't only add some partnerships, but you have to actually deprioritize some channels where you've uh, gotten candidates in the past in order to uh, to sort of let new uh, let new deal flow in and so we've been we've been doing that and uh, you know but but by the way there is this is this is not a quick fix in in any industry and it's certainly not a quick fix in uh, you know black women or or women of color founded businesses like we need to see more and that means the whole ecosystem needs to change in terms of how, uh, how, you know, there needs to be more black VCs. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the full stack. We, um, we at studios, we run a, a program called circles, which is like a peer support group for, um, CEOs running businesses and you get placed into a group and you have a facilitator and one, um, woman who was in one of our groups commented privately to me saying she's an African-American founder. And she said, and she's in a group of mixed gender, uh, mixed uh, background, mixed race people. Um, and she's made a comment that what was useful for her about being in the group was that hearing the way that white men make decisions and think about things that, that like some of the guys in her group were just like, I, I, have this idea for this thing. So I'm going to go raise a series A now. I'm ready to do this. We've done enough. And that like to her, that just wasn't a thought that triggered automatically. And obviously not everyone is the same. Um, but I think, you know, to your, to I, the, a question I'd ask is like, is there anything that you guys are doing to try to help? And, and not that you have an obligation, but I'm just curious if there's anything that you're doing to change your business practices to help in terms of sourcing, raise awareness for people that, Hey, you know, we're open for business like everyone else and, if, and your idea is as good as anyone else's. Yeah. So, so and by the way, I, I do think that we have an obligation. Uh, I, I don't think that it's a, uh, you know, I, I just don't think this is like something that like you decide that like is important to you or you opt into. We, yeah. we have an obligation. And uh, actually, if, if, if anyone wants to go to my Twitter, uh, which is B-E-N-J-L-E-R-E-R, -E -E um, we announced uh, a partnership that we're doing right, that we just announced yesterday, uh, uh, which is uh, gonna provide mentorship uh, and, uh, and, and open up a program to bring in uh, founders of color to help them uh, get 
I think it's part of what you were just talking about, which is what are the tools that I need to have? How do I need to think about raising money? How do I get the education to go out there and do this? And uh, that's, that's going to be one, of, but like, we're, we have to do a lot of stuff. It's not, it, it's really not going to be a, uh, none of this is, you can't do one thing. You know, we're having a conversation right now about uh, a, a side letter that we might, that, that, that some VCs are creating or that they want to give to uh, all of the companies that they invest in where the company makes best efforts to have at least one uh, either individual or, or, or VC of color on the cap table. And we're having a conversation around like, that's a, that's a nice idea. There's not really any teeth. Yeah. Is it worth doing things? Is it worth doing best effort stuff? Or is best effort stuff a, a bunch of a bunch of make yourself feel good, check the box stuff? Uh, and what can you actually necessitate? And w- like it's it, there. This, there's no simple answer to this. And you know we have a we have a, a decently sized team at the fund, and a uh, and we've had a lot of conversations about this, and continue to have a lot of conversations. And it's not just about you know people of color or about women. It's just about like, how do you, and, and it's better business also for, yeah. for us. How do you build more interesting deal flow? How do you bring more and more interesting perspectives to the table? And, and this comes back to the thing we talked about at the beginning, which is like, what's the meaning of life? Like, to what end are we doing any of this? Yeah. Literally to what end? Like, like why, why are we bothering with any of it? How do you feel like you're living a good life and contributing to whatever your version of like a good and, and just and happy world is. And, you know, so some of the conversations that we're having are, are meant to be tactical, but end up being very philosophical. So before we just move on from it, I I posted a link in the chat for everyone um, for the black VC announcement um, that uh, you referenced. Do you want to just talk about that just for two seconds? about what it is and what the program is and who is relevant for it? Well, so there's in, in, in like, it's a bunch of VCs partnering to create, uh, and I don't actually know what the, what the final number of people is, but uh, I know, yes, I think yesterday we got, uh, I think as of today, there's 150 submissions already. That's great. Uh, which is, That's which, bad. which by the way, like speaks to the, like we don't have some, uh, like we're not buying media promoting this. This is just word of mouth that quickly is founders coming and submitting for mentorship to go through this program. And each week they're going to have a different session taught by a VC on infra. And and there's, there's a bunch of different topics. Eric Hippo, my partner is teaching our session, which is going to be, uh, nuances or I, I can't, I, I don't know which, which session he ended up taking, but uh, it's, it's the sort of, it's everything you were talking about, how to understand how to go out and raise, how to think about, how to think about growth in the early stages, how to think about your brand, how to think about getting yourself set up for success, how to think about the, raising the right kind of round. It's, it's all the tools that you need to go out and successfully start a business, get your business funded and get going. Great. So we've got about eight submissions in a day. That's 
that is fantastic. And and so just for all you for all of you guys out there, take a look at it. Um, and if it's relevant to you, then you make yourself the 151st person. But that's great. Congratulations on that. And I, I hope that program goes successfully. And look forward to hearing more about results. Um, we've got eight minutes, so I'm going to give you some kind of rapid fire questions just for quick responses too. Okay. So, what's your thoughts on esports? Yes or no? Has the pandemic changed your feeling about it? What was interesting before. Still interesting. We made our first, uh, maybe maybe our second, our our first very explicit esports investment this past quarter that is not yet announced. Okay. Um, so, so you know, one person wrote in here how they're the founder of a media company with 250k subscribers looking to raise Series A. Their question was, how can I get in touch with you? But what I'd actually ask the question is, what's the what's your advice to someone who's at that level? What should they be doing next to grow? Well, there's a lot of questions be, be, you know, behind the 250K subs, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, are they paid subs? Are they free subs? Is it advertising supported? Is it, what category is it in? It's, but uh, like they can easily, they can get in touch with me. Uh, my email is the easiest email to guess in the whole world. Uh, that's my hint to it. Actually, you could just, is there a way that they can write in the thing? Just, yeah, yeah, my team's in a little hippo. I'm just Ben O'Leary Hippo. It's Ben O'Leary Hippo. There you go, guys. Anopi, uh, that's the answer. I create, if I get tons of emails, I, it's hard for me to respond to everything, but I'm more than happy to uh, get pitches for real companies. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay, cool. Thank you. Uh, all right, next question. Ed Tech, you mentioned you have three kids. Um, anyone with kids right now is like thinking, no matter what your situation is, you're like, what the fuck? Um, what's your thoughts about Ed Tech right now? Um, I mean, we've... I think EdTech's really interesting. Uh, we haven't, I don't think we've seen anything that's, that has really been super exciting in the last few months. Uh, we, we have some investments that we've made sort of over the years that have been, uh, that have been successful and that have certainly been uh, pulled forward by COVID. But boy, is there some big opportunity in here. Yeah. I mean, we did an AMA with Fred Wilson. Zoom is not the answer to uh, education online. That I know. No, we did an AMA with Fred Wilson a few months ago, and he was talking about how the pandemic has really pointed out how shitty ed tech is right now and how education is failing for a lot of kids because there just aren't services that that do it yet. Um, It's unbelievable how how broken the, the current system seems. Yeah. Would you guys invest in promising EdTech platforms or is that outside of your will? Absolutely. Positively, yes. Cool. You heard that. All right. Um, next question. What is a brand that doesn't exist that you wished you did? And really the implication there is what, what, what service do you wish existed that, that doesn't exist? I mean, I feel like if, I feel like if I had a great idea, I'm in a decently cool seat to make it exist. Yes. Uh, to to encourage somebody, I'll I'll give a past example, which yeah. is six or seven years ago, I said, it is. I went mattress shopping, and it was just the worst experience in the whole world. And I said, why does this is terrible? And 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 Casper rolled through the the door you know, six months later or whatever it was like, that was, that was probably the last time where I said, if I didn't have a job, I would start, I would start this company. Um, 
that, that I really had conviction that if I didn't have a job, I would have started a mattress company seven years ago. Yeah. I don't have a lot, unfortunately. That, I mean, that, that totally makes sense. The Casper thing, my mom, who's 68 years old, bought a Casper mattress last week. And that's a testament to how much that was a needed, a needed idea. So that, that was a good one. Um, okay, a couple more rapid fire questions. Um, uh, so you mentioned before, um, earlier on about how um, it was easier to raise seed versus Series A earlier in the pandemic because there was just a lot of uncertainty for bigger companies. Is that still true now, would you say, or are things quote unquote back to normal? I, I don't know. I, I think probably there's still a higher bar for later stage investing right now, just because those are, uh, you know, the, the, the business model for those funds require sort of a, a different batting average. Mm -hmm. uh, and so less clarity is more threatening. Uh, but I, I think most of the world is turned back on from an investing perspective. Like we're seeing, we're seeing our companies go out and raise successful series A, series B right now. Uh, and that really was very few and far between for the first three months of the pandemic. Cool. All right. Last two questions. What's a good book you've read recently? I'm assuming you read books to be. I do read books, but I, my, I, I'm going to disappoint everyone here because I read like smut. Um, That's great. I, I am, I'm reading uh, the book called The Kept Woman by Karen Slaughter that was a recommendation of the founders of The Skim who told me, who, who in a meeting, uh, they, they have a very successful book club and they read, we found, we realized that we both read garbage fiction. And so this is their recommendation. This is what I'm currently reading. I, one of the things that I love about Twitter is that it's made people feel, realize that you should feel a lot more comfortable reading whatever the hell it is that you want. Um, <laughs> but I've never read a business book in my whole life. I've yeah. never, I read, I read for pure entertainment. And actually right now, I actually listen to books more than I read them because I'm, I'm on screen so much because of Zoom that, uh, and one, if I was reading a book, I would be reading a Kindle. So I'm, I'm more, I'm listening to books more than what, what's, what's the podcast that you listen to most right now? Um, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. The podcasts I listen to most are our podcasts at group nine, um, as a more, more from a sort of education perspective, yep. but I'm just like personally not in the podcast thing. And I, I my podcast time is spent on books on tape. Cool. Okay. And then last question. Um, so I think, you know, one thing that's been, I think, weird for a lot of people about COVID is that we're not seeing people, many people like yourself aren't leaving the house at all, but we are still connecting with people. Um, what's one person you've met during COVID that you might not have met otherwise that's been, that was an interesting or surprising meeting and, and something you feel good about? One person I've met during COVID. On a Zoom uh, call and a meeting. Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, I, 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 uh, I guess I don't think, but I've met some, I've met interesting people, but I think I would have met them in, in the normal course of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've been, you know, we've been pretty isolated. I have to say we, you know, my, I have, I were in the bubble with my parents and my wife's mom and, yeah. and we're, we're really careful. And so, uh, I just don't feel like they're, I mean, I, I guess I would have to say there's probably a few founders who we've met who started things that they would 
that, that have been COVID inspired that I might not have met otherwise. But, uh, you know, I, I've spent the time that I've spent with my kids would, would check the box of all, all the interesting encounters that I've, that I've had have been with my family. So that la my very last question will be, um, what's one thing that so many founders are also parents. What's one thing that you've learned during COVID about yourself as a parent that you want to continue doing COVID or, or not COVID? Well, I mean, there's little stuff. I take my, I, it's, it's been two weeks, but I take my, my boys to school every day, um, which I took them sometimes, but now I take them every single day and we'll work, we'll build my morning around it. And it's like, I, it's unmissable for me and that's awesome. And like the coolest half hour of the day that I have, but, uh, I just think it's, it's just being like, I, I think I'm, 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 ha I'm really happy to be spending so much time with my family right now. And it's making me sort of in many ways, the happiest version of myself. And, uh, and as a result of that, I'm more patient uh, in every aspect of my life, but in particular with my kids, I'm just like, I'm just, I'm just like a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an easier going person right now. Uh, in a simple, his life is sort of simpler. That's, that, that's great to hear and a great note to end on. And I'll go back to the thing you said earlier too, is the idea of trying to seek more presence in the moment in things that you're doing. I think that's something that I felt personally during COVID and you mentioned as well. Ben, thank you so much for your time. It was really awesome uh, that you opened up and, and talked quite a bit here. Thanks everyone for joining. Um, ben did throw his email out there. So if you're hitting him up, if you've got the next big ed tech idea, please save us all, um, our children at least. Um, and thanks again. Next week on Tuesday, we've got Justin Can, the founder of Twitch and uh, hope to see you guys around here soon. Cheers. Awesome. Thanks everybody.